Ecclesiastes 4, 7 through 16. 7 through 16. Follow along with me. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. His eyes are never satisfied from riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, and he has no other to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king. Who knew no longer, who knew how, no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. He's been born, been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There is no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely. This is also vanity and striving after the wind. Would you pray with me? Father, God, we are humbled by your word. Lord, we're humbled by uh, the reality of what the teacher is talking about here, Lord, and that is that living alone is futile. God, I pray that as we, as we look at your word, as we study it, Father, that you would move in our hearts. Holy Spirit, would you come right now and fill this place with your presence? Lord, would you change us to be people who love community and love your church? Jesus, I ask right now that, Father, I would not get in the way of what you would have to say. Lord, that I wouldn't get in the way of what your spirit would be doing in this place this morning. Jesus, we love you, and we ask that you would be honored and glorified, because you are worth it. In Jesus' name, amen. I love to watch World War II documentaries. Um, have you guys seen Band of Brothers? Yes, good. And the Pacific? So not as many people. That's okay. You should watch it. Um, the Pacific is the story. Where, so Band of Brothers is taking place on the German front of World War II. The Pacific is taking place in the Pacific, obviously, right? Um, with a lot of, with the Marine Corps. And there's a story I wanted to share with you briefly this morning about the main character in this, in this drama series, also in a book, um, called Sledge. I don't know his first name. I'm sorry about that. But that's what they call him in the show is Sledge. And Sledge is kind of this moral, good, southern boy who goes to fight in the war. And he's got, he's got good moral standards. He's got good ethics. But the war takes a toll on him. And there's another guy 
named Snafu. Really creative names, right? Snafu, who is literally crazy. <laughs> he does his job well, but for the most part, he is kind of cuckoo. And what, we get this scene after they've done, there's been a huge battle. They're walking through the jungle, and Snafu takes a pocket knife, goes up to a Japanese corpse, and starts popping out his gold teeth. Kind of gross, right? Because he wants to collect the gold and then cash it in after the war's over and he can have himself some money. Starts doing this on a regular basis. You start seeing other Marines start doing the same thing. And it comes to a point, and I'd say it's the breaking point of Sledge. At this point, he hasn't participated in this. And he sees Snafu doing it. He says, okay, I'm going to do this. So we walk up and there's this intense moment where he's just staring over the Japanese corpse. You can tell that in his mind it's just, should I do this? Should I not do this? And Snafu, the crazy one, looks at Sledge and says, I wouldn't do that if I were you, man. You don't want to do that. See, Snafu understood that he'd already crossed that line. Crossed that line where he wasn't listening to other people. Makes me think of just what our passage is talking about today, in that we need each other. Sledge needed Snafu at that point. Sounds so silly saying these names. Needed Snafu at this point to say, don't do that, man. In and of yourself, don't, you're going you're gonna to lose it. Don't do it. He needed a second. The main thrust of what I'd hope you'd get this morning would be that you and I need each other. We need each other desperately. We were never meant to live apart from each other. It wasn't our design. We can see this in the garden, right? God says that everything is good. Everything he's created is good. But what's the one thing he said is not good? He looks at Adam and he says, it's not good that Adam's alone. Just as Jason read in the liturgy, so he created Eve we were meant to live in community. But what happened is in the fall, we destroyed that. When we came, when Eve came and sinned for the first time, Adam, Adam following that, it fractured, if you will, our relationship with God. Completely and utterly destroying it beyond repair. And because of our fractured relationship with Christ, with God, it causes all of our relationships, whether it's with your wife, or your kids, or your family, or your job, to be constantly at war within yourself. Always fighting for what you know is, and you believe you should be doing, but you can't because we're individualistic. Israel exuberated this same tendency. When God gave them the Ten Commandments, he gave four right in the, for their relationship with him and six for their relationship with others, right? Do not murder, do not steal. Those are all things that we commit against each other. He had to constantly knock this over them. They had become a society that was very much into keeping up with the Joneses, if you will. Right? But not just keeping up with the Joneses. They wanted to do better than, jo than the Joneses. If you don't know that phrase, it basically means that you are trying to be better. Or you're trying to look better than the people around you. We are the same as Israel. 
We, do this, we have the same tendencies, do we not? We live in a society that is highly commercialistic and consumer-oriented. This passage makes me think of, uh, if you've seen the movie The Joneses, it's with David Duchovny, not a very good movie. But it has a section in it where uh, basically the premise of the movie is they, this family, family, they're not really a family, move into a neighborhood, buy a nice house, have a lot of nice stuff, and it's meant to make the people around them want those things. It's made to make the people around them desire those things and make, make them feel like they have to get it. And there's a tragic character who is looking at, his, at the Joneses, looking at all that they have and the new golf clubs and the new sports cars and the fancy food. And he just has to keep getting it because his wife wants him to have it, wants them to have it. So he keeps purchasing things and goes into extreme amounts of debt and eventually just kills himself. It's really sad. Eventually just kills himself because he has found that there's no value in the things that he's been pursuing. No value in the things that he's pursuing. Our culture tells us constantly that we are to look out for our own good, do they not? Constantly we're fighting this idea that I have to get my own. I have to take care of myself. Doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. I need to do my thing. What's good for you is good for you. What's right for me is right for me, right? We see that in the way they look at religion, right? We, they start saying that truth, the world says, and I believe it creeps into the church as well. We begin to say that truth is relative, that whatever's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me, okay? We're just not going to step on each other's toes. I, I can do my own thing apart from community. I think one of the silliest things that I hear on a semi-regular basis is when you ask someone about going to church, do you, hey, do you go to church? You want to go to church with me? And they say to you, no, I've got my own spirituality. Me and Jesus are cool. I don't need a church. I, I don't like man-made religion. But see, that's, that's just silliness. They become so self-confident that they don't, they feel that they don't need someone else, but we need each other. We need each other. We don't even, it's not just that we believe that we, we think that we're in it of ourselves good enough. But what's the phrase that goes around all the time? People say, oh, if you just believe in yourself, right? You hear this all the time on pop television. Where people say, oh, if you just believe in yourself, you'll get your goals, if you just believe in yourself, you can get this car. If you just believe in yourself, you can have the best marriage ever. Belief in yourself. And my wife reminded me of a quote from G.K. Chesterton I thought was very appropriate. Wanted to share it with you this morning. Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy, it's a great read if you get a chance to read it. Um, in the very beginning part of the book, he's having a conversation with a publisher about writing a book. And the b publisher says, well, you know, if you just believe in yourself, you know, things can happen. You look at these great guys, these great men, they just believed in themselves. And this is Chesterton's response to that publisher, and I love it. He says, shall I tell you where the men are who believe most in themselves? For I can tell you, I know of men who believe in themselves more colossally than Napoleon or Caesar. I know where flames the fixed star of certainty 
and success, I can guide you to the thrones of the supermen, the men who really believe in themselves are all in lunatic asylums. Did you guys catch that? They're all in lunatic asylums because they've shut out the rest of the world. They've decided, I don't need someone else to tell me how I feel because the only thing that is real, the only thing that matters is what I believe. And this is my reality. He goes on to say, complete self-confidence is not merely a sin. Complete self-confidence is a weakness. Believing utterly in oneself is a hysterical and superstitious belief like believing in Joanna Southcote. Joanna Southcote, if, you, if you're not familiar, was in the, I believe, 17 or 1800s, a self-proclaimed prophetess. She said she was going to fulfill some of the end time uh, things in Revelations. Revelation, oh, I hate that, sorry, Revelation. And ultimately she died and none of it was true. She was crazy. She believed in herself and did not believe in what anyone else told her. The teacher in Ecclesiastes addresses this selfish individualism. And he's going to give us three sections that I want you to follow along with me. The first section, he gives us an example of someone who is striving after his own riches. He's lost all of his friends and family. And he's doing his own thing. And he comes to the end of his life and he doesn't have anything. The second section, he gives us three different parables, if you will, of how being together in community is true and good. How we need it. And then the last section he closes with is another example of a foolish king who does not follow what other people say. What other people, list, what other people are trying to tell him. If you go to, again to Ecclesiastes 4, we're going to read verses 7 and 8. Again I saw vanity under the sun. It's a life apart from Christ, a life apart from God. One person who has no other. The literal translation of that is he has no second. He doesn't have anyone with him. No second. He has no other. Either son or brother. Yet there is no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So they never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an un happy business. So we get a picture of what it means and how useless it is to strive after your own well-being and your own good only to lose everything else. We see this time and time again in our culture, don't we? Stories of people who have reached the pinnacle of fame and fortune. And what do they say? I just need a little bit more. This Chad talked about a couple weeks ago. I just need something else because my soul is not satisfied. And the teacher in Ecclesiastes addresses this by saying it's vanity. It's useless. We have a picture of a man who is pursuing his career. He's pursuing his own fortune. And he's going at it alone. So much so that he doesn't have any relatives. He doesn't have a brother. He doesn't have a cousin which were the two closest relatives at that time who could inherit what he's worked for. 
He doesn't have any of that. He's by himself, and he comes, he, he's so, this is, the, this is a great picture of how we get sometimes, and I believe that the world feeds this, and our culture feeds this. He's never satisfied, so he never gets to the point where he says, why am I doing this? Why am I toiling for all this money? I, I, don't, have, I, I don't have any fun. I don't have any pleasure in life. Because all I'm doing is working and working and trying to make my own and get my mine. Selfish, selfish individualism at its best. The fruit of his labors he can never enjoy with anyone else. Never enjoy with anyone else. It's all in and of himself. And what does the teacher say at the end? Verse 8. He goes on to say, This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Guys, we're never meant to be alone. We're not meant to strive after our own riches because somehow we believe that they're going to satisfy us. We do this all the time, do we not? Where we believe something, whether it's riches, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a church... We go around and we think, this is going to satisfy me, rather than looking to Jesus. Constantly. I do this all the time, right? I love musical instruments, if you can't tell. I love guitars. And I have decent guitars, nice guitars. I like them. But I go into a guitar store, and what do I do? Oh my gosh, that'd be so awesome. I want that Telecaster, or that Gibson Les Paul Special. And some of you guys are looking at me like, what? Gibson what? Doesn't matter. I want something. Or I see this in myself when I want a new car, right? I shipped my truck to Hawaii and shipped it back. <laughs> Don't. It, that's a long story. Anyways, shipped it there and back. If you, you can see the Hawaii license plates if you check out my truck. And I was talking with my wife a couple weeks ago, and I was like, man, it'd be just, it's just so nice to have a newer car. <laughs> it'd be so nice to have something that had a lift kit or big tires, <laughs> Or an auxiliary cable where I could plug in my iPod. We all do this. We all do this in pursuing our selfish, uh, consumeristic mentality. But it's not good. It's an unhappy business. With no one to share it with, it will never bring you satisfaction. Outside of community, it will never bring you happiness. Go on to verse 9 through 12. He gives us three different illustrations of why it is good. And he's going to, he's primarily talking about traveling. See, right, in, in Israel's day, when you had to walk everywhere, it was really dangerous to go by yourself. Because they had these pits. So if you're walking along at night and you just fall into a pit and no one's around you, you're in trouble. You can't do anything. You're stuck. He also talks about keeping warm at night. Keeping warm as we travel, as well as if someone is to overwhelm you with ro like robbers or, or uh, someone who wants to attack you, like the Good Samaritan. Good Samaritan, the, the person that he helps, he's traveling along the road by himself, and what happens? He gets beaten to a bloody pulp and is left for dead by himself. This was a common occurrence. So the teacher in Ecclesiastes is addressing this, and I believe it applies so much more to our lives than just traveling. Read with me. Two are better than one because they have good reward for their toil. In other words, they can 
enjoy it together. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and is not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one prevail against one who is alone? Two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So he gives us three illustrations of picking each other up, keeping warm, and be able to withstand an enemy or an attack. We use this whole going out in twos today, do we not, with the buddy system. I was a youth pastor for about a year, um, youth director, if you want to get the technical term. But I was a youth director for a year, and this was a constant thing when I was with junior hires. If you've never worked with junior hires, you should, just for the experience. (laughs) They are a crazy bunch. Just really quick, because I'm up here and you're not, and I can say this. When we would go to, uh, I'd have a high school group and a junior high group. The high school group would meet on Wednesday nights, Tuesday nights, junior high group. If you were to go just as an observer to one night or the other night, it's drastically different. Junior hires, you walk into our uh, mini play area and there's balls flying everywhere. People screaming. We had a Lamborghini dented because one of our kids threw a, uh, what was it, pool ball, and (laughs) they didn't throw it at someone, but they were playing this game, and it popped over the side and hit uh, the Lamborghini, and it was just a bad thing. Anyways, that's an aside. Uh, Go to the high school, and they're really chill and hanging out, and the whole point of this is junior hires need a buddy, right? We see that, you guys see this with your kids when when you take them to the children's school, um, they need someone to go with them as for safety, right? Someone gets lost. Someone, if they go by themselves, you never know what could happen if, if there's some sort of predator out there. We like having the buddy system. It's a principle we use now. Keeping warm. Uh, quickly, I'll give you a great illustration of what he's talking about with keeping warm. When I was... A senior in high school, I just graduated, Chad and I went to Romania. And that's a sweet trip. You should hear about that another time. But we went to Romania, and one of the things we had to do as we were in Romania is we had to kind of pretend we were visitors, um, if you will, because they, they get in trouble if you're a missionary and whatnot. So one night, we... As, our, as we were travelers or as we were visitors and tourists, they took us to the Transylvania Mountains. There's a lot of stories that took place from the Transylvania Mountains. You, should, you could talk to me or chat about that. But it was the coldest night of my life. It was freezing. And I've been in cold areas. Wisconsin was the devil. It was super, no, it really wasn't the devil, but it was super cold. But in the Transylvania Mountains... We, it was four guys, and we were in this tent, and it was like super, super windy. And what did we do to keep warm? We all hugged each other all night. <laughs> four guys. And then, well, anyways, yeah. Four guys hugging each other. None of us really slept, and it was, it was cold enough just like that. I can't imagine what it would have been like to lay by myself on the top of the Transylvania Mountains. I probably would have died. Or something like that. You never know. But 
We needed each other to keep warm. There's a practical application. We needed to stay warm, so we hugged each other all night. (laughs) Moving forward, being attacked. Being attacked. If you were to travel by yourself, especially in those days, it was really, really likely that you could be attacked by someone. So it was always good, just like the buddy system with the kids, it was good to bring a buddy along or someone with you to make sure you weren't going to get attacked, make sure you could withstand someone who came at you. Um, and today, that's, that same thing is true. When we go jogging, what do we usually tell people to do? Tell them to take a buddy, right? Especially if they're going somewhere that's unsafe. Um, we tell people to make sure that they are aware of their surroundings when they're walking around. Making sure that they stay in groups. I think of my wife and I, before she got married, she was in Chicago for an audiology convention. And uh, we were just talking on the phone and she was outside and I was like, you, make sure you're around a bunch of people. Just because you're in Chicago. I don't want you to die. Right? We do that as, as people. We think it's good to have people around, good to be in community. The three illustrations apply greater than just traveling, right? Again, we see in the garden that God said it was not good for the man to be alone, so he created Eve. There are advantages to not being alone. Did you know that married people, research shows that married people actually live longer than single people, especially in those later years? I know that's great news for you single people. That means just get married. It's cool. Um, They live longer. There's many advantages to business partners going into a business together because you can get different ideas. There are all sorts of wonderful things that can be had from, ha- from being in community with each other, right? Being in community with each other it applies bigger than just business. applies bigger than just uh, husband and wife. Hus- you need a husband and wife. Um, helps with raising a kid, right? Or ha- helps, helps with having someone else to bounce ideas off of. The teacher concludes this section with a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Up until this point, he said two, right? Two is better than one. Two is better than one. Yada, yada, yada. And he, let, he ends it with three. And I think it's intentional in that he's saying that there's nothing sacred about two in this regard. There's nothing sacrosanct about having two. But there, and there's great advantages to having more people. We think of sports teams, right? Basketball, you need a team of five guys unless you're Kobe Bryant. Just joking. I, I, I love the Lakers. Anyways, um, you need a team. You need a, in a, the Women's World Cup. Are any of you guys watching it? I know it's, yeah, no one's watching it. I am. Um, it's great. You need a team of 11 ladies to beat the other opponent. There are advantages to being bigger than just two. And I, it makes me think of the church. We are a unique bunch of people, are we not? We are a unique bunch of people. And each one of you has specific gifts for the body. Each one of you has specific tasks that you can do better than someone else. And I believe when we are together as a church, 
working together, it's greater than anything else. It's greater than any other team that can come about because we are a reflection of what, of who God is. See, we need a group of people together, worshiping, serving, living life, rubbing up against each other in order to properly and accurately, I think, reflect the glory of God because he's made each one of you different, right? Each one of you is different. And together, we make this beautiful bond. God created us for companionship. As we discussed earlier, God gave Israel many laws regarding how they treat their neighbor. And the culmination of it comes out in Leviticus 19 where he says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Summing up all the ways you can relate to other people. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus reiterates this. In his command in Matthew twenty two thirty nine, 39, he says, to love your neighbor as yourself, right? He goes back and brings that full circle. Jesus lived according to this principle of two are better than one. And let me say this before I go into how Jesus fulfilled this. Jesus lived in such a way that we were initially designed to live. You guys catch that? Jesus lived in such a way that we were initially designed to live. And that's in community. That's with other people. He lived that out perfectly. He's the only one who could do it. Jesus gathered disciples around him, right? He had 12 disciples. And many more that would follow he sent out his disciples in what, two by two. He didn't just say, okay, you go over here, you go over here. No, he said, go out in groups of two. Groups of two. He lived by this idea of two are better than one. He also said to his followers that, and this is in Matthew 18, 16, and then I'm going to jump to 19 through 20. If you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you. So that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Truly I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am among them. See, Jesus lived in community. And may I just say this? If anyone in the history of the world had the excuse to live a solitary life, it was Jesus. Perfect community with the Father and the Holy Spirit. If anyone didn't need community, it was Him. So why do we act like we don't need community? Why is it that we say, oh, I, I just don't really want to go to church I don't really want to worship with people. They're just a bunch of hypocrites. They're just a bunch of people who, who just don't know what they're talking about. I don't want to, I don't want to, I might see someone that I don't want to see. I might feel uncomfortable. I don't like the way they sing their songs. I don't like the way they preach. Right? We come up with these excuses. The early Christians were not loners. Right? They took this principle of Jesus' perfect design for community and they just brought it into their lifestyles. Paul in Philippians 2, or actually let's go to Acts first. The book of Acts looks 
Luke records that all who believed were together and had all things in, commu- in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the, distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Any had need. Did you guys hear that? As any had need. That means they would sell their positions in order to help out their brother because they understood that everything in this life was meant for us to share in community with each other. What good is it if I have a million dollars if I'm by myself just wallowing in my own self-pity? Right? We see that in rock stars and famous people who ultimately turn to drugs and stealing because they found out that living it by themselves, not communi- communing with other people, is useless. It's futile. The early Christians understood that they needed to be together, bonded together. Is this what our church looks like? Is this what the church looks like? I think we got a long way to go. But, thank- but thankfully Christ is good and sufficient. Paul encourages the church with this in Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Paul pleaded with the church saying, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, my joy being... uh, Excuse me, let me come back. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in a full accord and, one, and of one mind. One people, one group. Be that way. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Do we do this, friends? Do we look to, the, to other people to help them out? Do we look for help? The church is a community in one body. And we're made to reflect the various attributes of God. And this is only because he's made us alive in Christ for believers. Continue with me in Ecclesiastes. He gives us one more illustration. So he said, the first illustration, the rich man pursuing wealth and riches and fortune for himself and having nothing. He gives us examples of why it's good to be in community, why it's good to be with each other, why it's better to not go it alone. And then he gives us one last example of a rich and old foolish king. And by the way, that was, all, that was very much a paradox at that time. It was very much an inconsistency to say an old foolish king. Because usually when you said the word old in their culture in that time, it meant that they were, to be, they were wise and respected. But he says an old foolish king. Verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who knew, no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born, born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth. 
who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end to all of the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and striving after the wind. We get a picture of a foolish king. and very much reminds me of the quote I stated later from G.K. Chesterton where he talks about he will no longer take advice. If you think of it like this, he's, he's fired his advisors. He said, no, 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 I'm going to do it on my own. I can do this. I can lead these people. I believe in myself. What does the teacher say? Better was a poor and wise youth than an old foolish king who didn't know how to take advice. Can you take advice? Just think about that for a second. Can you take advice from someone? Or have you secluded yourself? I think it's easy to take advice from people and stuff we don't know, right? It's easy to be just like, I don't know how to make this computer. Uh, you can teach me how. Or I don't know how to use this Mac. Or I don't need, know how to use, I don't know how to cook. Or So we can take advice. It's a whole different thing when it's something we feel that we know really well, right? It's a whole different aspect is a whole different twist on it when it's your profession and someone's trying to tell, help you out. Do you seclude others out? Have you become like an old foolish king who says, no, 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 I got this. I can do this on my own. I don't need your help. I pray that you haven't, but I think in some regards, many of us have on a regular basis. It's not something that we just let go of without Christ. Again, the point of this illustration is that life apart from Christ, which means if you are part of Christ, if you are in Christ, you are living in community, is futile. It's useless. Tim Keller said in a sermon I was listening to yesterday, and I love the way he put this, he says, when you are saved, you're not just saved from sin, right? You're not just saved from sin. You are saved and redeemed to community. To community. To live with people. To be in community with the church. Serving alongside. But I think many of us find hindrances towards having a good community. Right? Some of you might be saying, yeah, Johnny, I get it. We're supposed to be in community I, I see that the scripture t uh, teaches that. I see that Jesus lived that out. Okay, great. I can't do it for some, re some reason or another. And let me just give you a couple illustrations or a couple ways I think that we do this where we, we fight against our community. Relationships are messy, are they not? Relationships are super messy, especially if you're willing to be vulnerable with someone. Because it can hurt really, really bad. We, get, they, we think of emotional baggage, right? Someone who's maybe had a bad breakup. Maybe they've been abused. Maybe they have uh, had bad parent figures. And we look at them and we think, man, it's just... I, it's just a little messy. They've got too much junk. I'm, I'm totally guilty of that at times. Walking up to a homeless person to share, share Jesus, and I think, ah, they're probably on drugs, probably messy, 
It's probably gonna, it's probably gonna cost me something. It's an excuse. We may find that we're fear, fearful of being rejected. This is a huge reason I think that people don't live in community with other believers. We don't live in community. We don't, we don't truly believe that Jesus' death conquers those things. So we, we are fearful of being rejected or abandoned. Some of you in this room have been rejected by someone. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's your son and daughter who've pushed you away and said, no, I don't want to have anything to do with you, mom and dad. Maybe it's your spouse. You have legitimate reasons for feeling fearful of being rejected or abandoned. Another uh, hindrance or an excuse would be it leaves us vulnerable, susceptible to pain. I touched on that. But essentially, I think it comes down to um, it can come down to pity parties, right? We get this idea of me, it's me versus the world. Again, believing in myself. It's me versus the world. I can take them on. You see this in critiques of the church, do you not? Where we see people say, oh, I don't, I don't like that church because they do this wrong, this wrong, and this wrong. And there's no forgiveness. And there's no grace towards the people who are leading Happens all the time. We have excuses. And ultimately, I think it comes down to this. We do not believe that the cross was sufficient enough. We don't. We don't believe that when Jesus died on the cross and put to death sin and death, that it was good enough to cover our own inhibitions to community. Do we not? We don't ultimately believe that he is powerful enough to break through our chains, to break through our rejection, to break through all of the pain that has gone into your life. We don't believe that. But friends, let me tell you this. He is able. Christ is able. When he died on the cross and resurrected from the grave, he put to death all of sin and shame and had victory over the curse. If he has enough power to put to death sin, he has enough power, the cross has enough power to break through your inhibitions for community, your hindrances. Do you believe that? I know we struggle with that, but we need to believe that. The cross is enough. You are a new creation in Christ. And it's because of him that we can live that way. We far often exchange the beauty of community and relationships for comfort and ease. Do we not? We far often exchange the beauty of relationships for comfort and ease. C.S. Lewis has a great quote about this. The messiness of relationships. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one. Not even to an animal. 
Wrap it carefully around your hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in the casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will become unbreakable and impenetrable, irredeemable. Guys, community's hard, is it not? It's hard to live with each other. It's hard to break through those, those barriers that we have. But may you be encouraged with this. Christ is the creator of community. Christ is the creator of community. So in him, it's already established. It's already taking place. Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, and catch this, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. See, we don't create it. We don't create community. Jesus created it. Jesus lived it. And so now as believers, we look to him and we maintain it. We walk in our new selves, the new man that Christ has created inside of us. We are free, as Paul says in Corinthians 15, 58, to therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In Christ, all these things can be made. All these things can happen. In and of ourselves, friends, we will not have community. We will be much like the rich person who is self-absorbed. We will give in to our culture. We might be like the foolish king who says, I don't want to listen to anybody. I don't want to take your advice because I'm good on my own. But Christ redeems those attitudes. Christ came to redeem all things to himself. And community is just part of it. Community is just part of it. I want to leave you with a song I'm going to read to you from Derek Webb. Derek Webb is one of my favorite artists. And he has a song called The Church. And I think it's very appropriate uh, for what we're talking about today. So let me leave you with this. I have come with one purpose, to capture for myself a bride. By my life, she is lovely. By my death, she's justified. This is Jesus singing. A picture of Jesus. I have always been her husband, though many lovers she has known. So with water I will wash her, and by my word alone. So when you hear the sound of the water, you know that you're not alone. And this is the chorus. Because I haven't come for only you, but for my people to pursue. You cannot care for me with no regard for her. This is the church. If you love me, you'll love the church. 
I have long pursued her as a harlot and a whore, but she will feast upon me. She will drink and thirst no more. So when you taste my flesh and my body, you will know, you will know you're not alone. The bridge goes like this. So there is none that can replace her, though there are many who will try. And though some may be her bridesmaids, they can never be my bride. Because I haven't come for only you, but for my people to pursue. You cannot care for me with no regard for her. If you love me, you'll love the church. Friends, would we, would we believe that? Would we be people who love the church, love community, because that's what we were designed for? And would you look to Jesus to redeem it? to redeem your heart to live in community. Pray with me. Father, God, we are so thankful for your grace. We're so thankful, Lord, that in Jesus, we are, we are not alone to live in community, but it is through him and only because of his death and resurrection, Father, that we can uh, pursue a good community. We can pursue living life with one another. Jesus, we love you, and we ask that you would be honored in your name. Amen.